0: Hello, I'm Cassidy and welcome to the second episode of the second series of Made at UCL the podcast. Three years ago, I got the opportunity to work as a field assistant in Panama and had the chance to meet and form friendships with a number of researchers. I was in awe of how committed they were, sometimes even risking life and limb to obtain the data they needed in areas of immense importance but I also felt frustrated that much of their research was invisible to those outside of academia. I've had a passion for telling research stories ever since. Now more than ever, the world is facing problems that need to be urgently addressed by research. And I'm here to share with you how the faculty and staff at UCL are working tirelessly to produce community-oriented, groundbreaking research to help make a real difference. This month's theme is voice, and in this episode, we're finding out how people are regaining their voice after their voice boxes are removed, how a group of LGBTQ refugees in Brazil are using film to tell their stories and how health students and advocates are sharing the impact of their work through poetry. Let's get started.
1: How would I describe my voice? I think my My voice voice is an
2: expression of resistance against being silenced.
1: My voice is an extension
3: of myself. I think I've never really liked the sound of my voice. also
1: a kind of desire for telling stories. That defines my I feel voice. like
3: my voice is quite gentle. I feel like it doesn't command attention.
4: It's never too late to stop taking our own voice for granted.
0: This month's episode is all about voice and how using your voice can be a powerful tool. Our guests come from three diverse research areas, but in all cases, they are using their chosen subject to raise awareness and advocate for change. Our first guest is a professor from the UCL Institute of Education. He has a background in computer science, education, and psychoacoustics. He records songs, can play the guitar, and even make you one. And he is the first ever to hold a lectureship at University of London in music and technology. Can you introduce yourself for us?
4: All right, my name is Evangelos Himonidas.
0: Alongside his research, he works with the UK based charity, Shout at Cancer.
4: It was founded by uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Thomas Moores, who is a physician specializing in uh, ear, nose, and throat, and is, from what I understand, still the world's only charity that supports low injectomies, people that have undergone low injectomy through music and other artistic activity.
0: A laryngectomy is a surgical procedure used to treat advanced throat cancer.
4: It involves the complete removal of your voice box, the whole laryngeal assembly, and it's it's a huge operation, a huge undertaking.
0: Laryngectomies have a huge impact on people's bodies, and patients have to go through a lot of rehabilitation to regain fundamental abilities and overcome the surgery's side effects.
4: We're talking about a major intervention with huge repercussions and, and many side effects for well, the loss of smell, the loss of the voice as we know it, which is the product of the vibration of the vocal folds that lie within the uh, laryngeal assembly. So we don't have those anymore. The need to start developing new ways of phonation. But there is also some hidden side effects. And one of those is, of course, the ability to lift things Some people might find that this sounds a bit bizarre, but actually one of the amazingly important roles of the vocal folds when they're closing uh, to allow them for us to, to actually apply pressure so that we can lift things. So they have to identify with years and years of copious training in order to be able to do very basic things that we take for granted, like just lifting something as heavy as a book or even uh, lifting themselves to go up a step on a, on a staircase.
0: Together, Evangelos and Thomas have worked on a wide variety of projects that have helped support recovering laryngectomy patients, from developing a new chocolate bar to hosting a jazz performance. I spoke to him about one of his projects that won an experimentation at the UCL Public Engagement Awards 2020, because uh, it is perhaps the most unconventional.
1: Hi, this is Marv Radio. I'm a beatboxer, three times UK team champion, and we've been working on some beatbox techniques to make your practicing more fun.
0: That was Marv Radio, an award winning beatboxer and teacher who, along with Evangelos and Thomas, taught laryngectomy patients how to beatbox.
1: So now I'm going to do some call and response. I'll go first, and when I do this, it's your turn.
4: So what we did was to structure a series of workshops first with the laryngectomies and vocal coaches and Thomas and myself in rehearsing basic beatboxing techniques.
0: Evangelos and Thomas didn't choose beatboxing at random.
4: We chose beatboxing for for many different reasons. And one of those was that beatboxing as an art form is actually based and celebrates the originality of a sound. So it doesn't have any kind of preconceptions about what is acceptable and what is not, which is a very big part of certain genres of music, if you think about it, okay? You cannot just appear in the Royal Opera House and start making noises. I mean, in most cases, you are expected to conform to a particular style. With beatboxing, it's pretty much part of its core ethos to do exactly the opposite. In terms of the core ethos of of the genre itself, we were quite intrigued about it and we thought that this would be a very nice addition to making our participants feel comfortable.
0: Evangelos and Thomas were right. But as it turns out, beatboxing was an even better tool for recovery than they could have predicted.
4: Whilst doing it and now having done it, we discovered other things that we didn't necessarily predict that we were extremely positive about. And one of those things was that because of the inherent need for a beatboxing performance to be very strictly aligned with a very specific rhythmic pattern, we discovered that this innate need to essentially obey rhythm was having very positive and beneficial effects to our laryngectomies because it was actually helping them develop their breathing and their support structures further without feeling that they were working towards that.
0: So beatboxing turned out to be an effective tool in laryngectomy rehabilitation, but it also served another really important purpose for patients.
4: I don't remember the the exact statistics and and these vary across different countries and and the way that these are acquired but it's it's way above 80 percent from what i remember that uh, the condition is going in tandem with the feeling of social exclusion and social isolation and depression in many cases so most laryngectomies will also be treated for depression
0: to help combat these feelings of exclusion and isolation, the team invited children from local schools to perform with the laryngectomy patients and put on a beatboxing performance in Newham. For
4: Annie. So well, this is a little rendition we cooked up Heart of uh, Life. And it. If you know the words, say guys. <laughs> There was another angle and that ended up being a very important angle, which was understanding the people behind the condition, interacting with them, making the condition accessible, demystifying and kind of distancing people from looking at laryngectomies just as sick people with strange voices, okay, that turn heads every time they open their mouths in order to communicate. And tried to help our audience understand that these are human beings that lost the most important tool that we have in order to interact with other people, their voice. And they just have a new voice now. And this is as legitimate and as usable and as accessible and as big a part of their identities as anything else. And what could be more beautiful than not just randomly interact with them, but also make music with them and perform with them without feeling intimidated or without feeling threatened about it. And by understanding that it sounds different, it sounded different to me, but this is now someone's voice and this is how it sounds like. And although it doesn't sound as what one would perceive as the norm, it's still a musical instrument and people can have fun utilizing it.
0: Instead of just focusing on treating one aspect of a patient... Evangelos and his team took a more holistic approach by recognizing the array of struggles that patients who have had a laryngectomy face. The issue of motivation during the difficult rehabilitation required after surgery, the mental health issues that often accompany it, and the stigma that comes with having a voice that sounds different. By recognizing all these facets and working with a multidisciplinary team, they were able to create something that was uplifting truly unique and reached beyond the patients by including the public and showcasing what's truly possible. You can watch videos and learn more about this research and other projects involving Shout at Cancer by visiting shoutatcancer.org. For our second story this week, I spoke to Dieter Diswarte, a documentary filmmaker and UCL lecturer who has been working with LGBTQ plus refugees in Brazil to capture their stories through film and bring much-needed attention to an often overlooked group of people. Here is part of our conversation about his recent film, Aste Sentir. Can you tell us what the film is about?
1: So, Haste Sentir tells the story of three LGBT (laughs) refugees from Venezuela now living in Manaus at a small shelter called Casa Amiga. Casa Amiga is the only LGBTIQ plus refugee shelter in Latin America at the moment. And I was very much drawn towards this location to sort of like uh, create a collaborative film. And it follows them in their day-to-day life and as we get to know them, we also get to understand a little bit more their journey from coming to Venezuela to being where they are now, reflecting upon their future as well.
0: Yeah, I, I got to see the film. It was quite enlightening and it, it sparked this interest in me. And I, I did like a lot of research afterwards. There was things that like I understood a little bit, but I but I hadn't understood the extent of it. Yeah, it, it definitely made a difference to me. And I'm sure it does to a lot of people that that watch the film. Do you have any favorite moments in the film that you can recall?
1: I will always remember a scene in the film where Zahari, uh, who's one of our main characters, kind of like does the makeup of Alisi, who was one of the other women who were at, living at the shelter when I was there. And they kind of like just have this open conversation around like being trans. But it's, it's very intimate and feels very powerful in a way they just kind of like open up to each other in that moment about their experience of having to do sex work, uh, to survive, to try and live, to, to not get any respect from parents or family. And I think it was just such a powerful moment in just such a simple act that they were like just there kind of like, yeah, kind of helping each other out. And I, I just thought it was a really powerful moment.
0: You like to use documentary filmmaking as a tool to support uh, communities that face stigma. Can you talk to us about why you think documentary filmmaking in particular works well for that?
1: I think one of my first documentary films I made, the very first one, I made a film about me and my father and grandfather traveling back to like a small town in France where my grandfather was from, but nobody knew who his father was. Mother got pregnant very young, nobody knew, and I had this idea that we were going to try and find out. But the film turned out to be a lot about the relationship between me and my dad and also talking to him about my sexuality. The camera kind of gave me this power to ask these questions that otherwise I would never have been able to ask him. So I I kind of immediately felt the potential of filmmaking to address certain things or to tell a story or to ask people questions. And since I've also been teaching at UCL now for a few years, I often realize like how often my students look into themselves for stories and how powerful that can be for them for discovering themselves or understanding themselves. These kind of experiences and often working with more like vulnerable groups, I, I started thinking about, well, why can't we actually use filmmaking as a tool to support people or find ways that we can actually help them through this mean of like telling their stories, but also see it as a way of them kind of discovering a bit themselves or like accepting themselves a bit more.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I, I relate a lot to what you were saying. Um, I, I'm a bi and I grew up like from Texas, where it's very conservative. And my parents would sometimes say things to like mitigate the fact that like, after they knew, even after I had a girlfriend and stuff, they would just, you know, say things, they'd call her my roommate, they would do all these kinds of things. and And that can bring shame. And I think what's so cool about like documentary film and documentary radio is that ability to to talk to people and get to know them and hear their stories and, and yeah, use that to, to share. And you actually have like, you really have like a unique way of doing that. You have a way of trying to mitigate um, some of the ethical issues that come up with documentary filmmaking. Uh, could you talk about what some of those ethical issues are and your approach to filmmaking?
1: I think with media, it's, it's a, force for good and for bad (laughs) if you like because stories influence us in so many ways but done wrongly I think it can also do a lot of harm and there's of course a lot of like stories out there that don't necessarily reflect the truth or the reality of people's experiences so yeah it's also kind of really important and what we do is that trying to work in such a way that we can reflect as closely as possible the reality or the truth of people
0: how do you make your films to help ensure that you are reflecting the truth?
1: So, what what we do in like you know our projects is that we start off by delivering a series of workshops that are designed to sort of like skill people up in like you know camera skills, sound uh, equipment skills, but also are there to make people feel more comfortable with each other and also allow them bit by bit to kind of like start sharing some of their stories. When we start off, it's never any kind of obligation for anybody to do anything. <laughs> you kind of assume the role that you want. You want to be in front of the camera? That's all right. You want to be behind the camera? That's all right. Do you want to answer this question? That's fine. But kind of make sure that we, have, we create a safe space where people can practice something and also get to know each other. Uh, other small things we do to build trust. I know it's, it's very simple, but we we plan in a lunch break uh, always in the middle of our workshops, which is a moment where people just sit and eat and like talk about like some of their issues or what they've been through. This really helps in getting to know each other, and that is so important as well to kind of like start forming connections.
0: Yeah, and, and y'all fixed, I remember you talking about fixing food for each other and stuff as well, like they fixed fruit food for you, which is another kind of bonding thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, they would often, you know, in the morning, like immediately like serve me an arepa or something else, that I would have to eat it. And at the same time, I would do the same thing for them as well. You know, I'd bring home something that we could then all eat together. And I think through food, again, like you really make these connections and through eating together. I did also make sure, though, because, you know, one of the things is that the house provided food for them. So I also made sure to kind of like just live in a similar way as everyone was doing. That was kind of important as well.
0: So when the workshops are over, how does the film get made?
1: You know, we shoot a film like over a, a series of six, seven days, then follows a the process of editing. And when I f- have like a first draft or a few scenes finished, I would kind of go back to them and show to them these scenes or that draft and kind of get their feedback. And, you know, often by this time, there's quite a lot of trust between us already. So I've never really had it that people were like, no, hate it. I also always tried my best to kind of create a film that I think would like suit the people that I work with in terms of style. Which I think is also important. In *Hasse Sentir, Luis like hated his close-ups, and I know it's a silly thing, but you know, like maybe I, I would hate my close-ups maybe as well. And you know, although you think it's a shame at that point, but you take them out because that's part of the collaboration. You know, you want to respect people's choices and integrity and ethically. I feel like there's more consideration towards the the people. Although I know that as an editor, you have a lot of control over how you put together the story. I still feel like I never do it without any of their like kind of final consent and sign off throughout the process as well, which I think is important.
0: We all have internalized stigmas at some point in our lives. And it's okay that we have had those feelings, as long as we can recognize them and learn from it. By working collaboratively, forming personal relationships and Creating a comfortable and trusting environment for people to share their personal stories. Deter has found a way to empower those facing social stigma and has helped viewers to let go of their own biases. If you'd like to watch Oste Sinter, you can see it for free at yarrowfilms.co.uk. And so from beatboxing to collaborative documentary filmmaking, we come to our third form of voice this week, poetry.
3: House cleaning. Well, it's a poem about loss. Can I speak plainly of loss? The casting out, the breathing in. It's a poem about experience of quite significant loss I had when I moved away from home. I'm in Singapore to London. The silent withdrawal from life it brings. It's hard. It's really hard to describe because poetry can be so personal and it's like really difficult to go into details without people understanding sort of the wider context of your life and your history and you know your culture and where you're from. The shadow, it returns to common things. But a lot of it was to do with this feeling that I had left so much behind and so much familiarity and certainty Uh, and safety, I think. Coming to London was a real shock for me. Ticket stubs and birthday cards in a box you never thought you'd throw out. And in some ways, (laughs) as grateful as I am for it, I think there was a part of me that felt quite disconnected from back home and people I knew as a result of it. The sentimental sort. And that was the kind of thing you did for the memories. House was, was really just me recognizing that the, the loss existed, even though it was sort of an invisible, silent type of loss. But also the process of writing the poem helped me to think more about why the loss had to happen and how it had to make way for new things.
0: The Yale-UCL Poetry Competition is an annual competition for Yale and UCL students of medicine and allied disciplines. House cleaning, the poem you just heard an extract from, was written and performed by one of the competition winners, Sarah Wong, who is a final year medical student and has, like many of UCL's medical students, become a key worker during the pandemic. For this year's contest, participants were prompted with a question, what's your response to the COVID-19 crisis? Another winner, Anna Vignola, drew on her experience as a physician assistant student to create her poem, After Closing the Cadaver.
5: After Closing the Cadaver, I come home to admire the contours of a chest rising and falling in sleep, the shock of warm skin as I crawl to him sinking into the sweetness and guilt of being alive. So I, I wrote that poem after having finished my cadaver lab and I was in this weird state of feeling like I had just spent time among the dead uh, or very close to death. And then I had just come back to the realm of the living. And it's a very uncanny feeling. And I just felt so much joy in being alive and almost a sense of relief to have left that behind that, that death. But I also at the same time felt this immense sense of guilt because In order for me to have recognized this joy and to be experiencing and savoring this moment of life, uh, others had to have that stripped away and I had to leave them behind. And and that's a very difficult, I think, feeling to make sense of and to experience and, and just kind of confront the cruelty of life and that it's so beautiful and also so brief. And that's kind of where my mind was when I was writing that poem.
0: To reflect on the context of the pandemic and the wider conversations it has necessitated about public health and structural inequality, the competition organizers created a second category for poems on a medical or public health theme that was open to all Yale and UCL students. This category was won by Sarah with her poem, If Not Now, When a poetic diary written across the months of February, March, April, May, and June that captures the frustrations and despair of lockdown as well as the anger and action that the pandemic has inspired.
3: Match. It is not uncommon to fall in love amidst rows of shelves stocked to the brim with desire but caught between naked aisles We find our need exposed and in shame, we forget to be kind.
0: The final winner of the contest was Jamie Hale, a master's student in philosophy, politics and economics of health. They are a poet, playwright and actor and expert in disability and health and social care policy. Their poem is called Fibrotic.
2: It's a poem I wrote a number of years ago and was very fond of, but hadn't quite worked out what I was going to do with it. Fibrosis, noun, the thickening and scarring of connective tissue, usually after... When I wrote it, I was really interested in the natural body and the unnatural body. It's structured in a very tight column with the text, justified as an unnatural representation of a tree. If you graft orange buds onto a lemon tree... They grow together. A salad tree of sharpness and sugar, or the bud dies. And I wanted to think about what it means to have a body that is both natural and unnatural. Maybe while I slept, a tree was grafted onto me. I had a serious wound that was open for about 14 months on my heel. Lightning splits a tree hollow, like a cave it still grows and paralleling that to nature and to trees and lightning I managed to find a physicality that made me a lot more comfortable with the experience of my body and at the same time I was starting to use assistance with my breathing at night and I thought about how the role of a tree in the environment is to store carbon dioxide and the tree functioning as lungs by doing that and the fact that my lungs were also storing carbon dioxide increasingly. I just dreamed I was a tree, but I store carbon dioxide at night. Or I did. The machine breathes for me now. So those kind of images came together as a disparate set of concepts about how I was interacting with the world newly, and I brought it together into the poem.
0: I spoke to Anna and Jamie about their writing process and how poetry can be a way of processing the world around us.
5: I think everything that happens in my life, even the mundane things influence my writing, but certainly the pandemic has. I think all of us now have this underlying amount of anxiety. And even if it's not on the forefront of our mind, it's it's there with us. And so I, it's funny, sometimes I'll find myself stewing about some other uh, idea I wanna write down. And then all of a sudden, oddly enough on the page, something about <laughs> the pandemic um, appears and it seems like out of nowhere, but I think in reality, it's just because it's, it's always there and always present
0: as well as a way of communicating our experience.
2: I think for me, the writing I do that is therapeutic and is often very personal and will never see the light of day, and then there's writing that is primarily communicative. And even if it serves a therapeutic process, it's writing that I've developed deliberately and carefully as communication and where the therapeutic element is the background rather than the foreground. So as communicative work, I'm almost interpreting it as a persuasive piece. How do I create in this and convey in this the emotion, the experience, the desire that I want people to understand when they read it?
5: I was a painfully shy child. I started writing because I found a way to connect and communicate with the world without actually having to have social interactions. And I actually remember my earliest writing, it wasn't poetry, but it was like little stories. And I would use names that rhymed with my siblings' names to, you know, as code to um, get out my frustrations. But I think it's always been kind of a way for me to work out my emotions and my feelings and my observations about the
2: world.
0: And above all, a gift to ourselves.
2: I take that as a kind of gift of self-respect to myself that I say actually, you know what, you can do this, and you deserve to be taken seriously. But you will only be taken seriously if you are able to take yourself seriously. So make this time as a gift to yourself to say that you're worthy of the time spent creating. If
0: listening to this podcast has inspired you to express your voice through poetry... Our competition winners had this to say about writing and about entering the Yale-UCL Poetry Competition.
5: I would say something I wish I had told myself when I was younger, when I was writing, was just be honest. Don't worry about what is going to sound the best and be impressive. If your writing or your art is honest and, and is your truth, then it's going to be beautiful and it will be worth it.
2: And I think look for that pivotal moment in which something changes and then put that at the heart of your work. What I loved most about Anna's poem was how minute it was and how perfectly balanced on that one point of observation and change. Trust yourself to, to look at the details and the fineness. Don't feel like you have to tell the entire story for everyone to understand because actually sometimes the most perfect things are the smallest
3: I think definitely something the competition, the gift the competition really gave me was to affirm this poetic sense I always felt I had. And moving forward, I think it's given me a bit more motivation to know that these simple forms or simple phrases have the ability to connect with people and that they're worth writing. I think that was <laughs> something that I really took away from this.
0: Sarah, Anna, and Jamie were able to take their personal experiences, reflect on them, and create honest and profound pieces of writing that reflect the struggles and health today. Just as viewing old paintings in a museum gives you a glimpse into certain aspects of life at that time, so too can this poetry give future generations insight into this moment in time. If you would like to read all of the winning poems in full— You can do so on the UCL website. If you are interested in purchasing Jamie's new collection of poems, Shield, it's available online at vervepoetrypress.com. The Yale UCL Poetry Competition is an annual competition and will be open for entries later again this year. This month, we explored the theme of voice in relation to sound production, a chosen form of expression, and bringing attention to issues of importance. These stories showed how art, research, and storytelling can be a powerful combination. Evangelos' research had laryngectomy patients work with local youth, and they got to share with their community some of their experiences and their new voices' capabilities. Dieter's unique methodology for filmmaking gave LGBTQ plus refugees in Brazil a platform and the autonomy to tell their story in their own way. And Sarah, Anna, and Jamie were able to utilize their writing skills, backgrounds in health, and personal experiences to give us a glimpse into the world of health during the pandemic. Now is the time to ask ourselves, what skills do I have? And how can I utilize those skills? To make my voice heard. This episode was presented by me, Cassidy Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions, sounds from freesound.org, and additional materials provided by our guests. Special thanks to Evangelos, Sarah, Anna, Jamie, and Dieter for sharing their time and experience. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests this month. Thanks again for stopping by. Take care and speak out.